I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, really and simply evil. You're out of your mind, Wayne. God bless you. <laughs> what do we do? Hello out there and welcome back to Precinct 13, a podcast about the movie's music and mind of John Carpenter. My name is Nick Rocco Scalia, one of your two co-hosts, joined as always by your other co-host, Chris Oliphant. How's it going, Chris? Howdy-do. Doing excellent, Nick. How are you? I'm pretty excellent myself. So we're uh, we're taking things in a slightly different direction this week. We've been kind of on a roll doing the chronological filmography of John Carpenter for quite a while now. We made it through the 80s. We just finished a marathon two-part episode on 1988's They Live, which I had a lot of fun with. We hope all of you did too. Chris, have you recovered from that endless recording session we had for that one? Uh, I have. I'm. I'm just. Uh, I'm. I'm impressed that we were able to go that long with it. But uh, <laughs> a lot to say about that movie, apparently. Yeah, certainly. And what's I think great about it is I kind of am excited to see that movie again, even now, even though we've spent a lot of time talking about it and spent a, a lot of time just viewing it, taking notes on it and stuff like that. Uh, that was not one of the ones I appreciated the most. And now it's it's just sort of like I said on the last episode, kind of grown in stature for me. Yeah, it's I, I feel the same way. And definitely uh, listening back to the episode, what I love the most about this is like when we kind of set off on this journey from the start, you know, we never really claimed to be John Carpenter experts or by any means, but it's just been like this massive learning experience. Like I think about how much more I know about him as an artist now compared to when we started the show last September. And just to hear us riff on one movie for so long was was pretty interesting. Yeah, I absolutely feel the same way. And and you know me, I'm just into any kind of long form film discussion, film criticism whatsoever. So yeah, it's it's been very cool to do that. So that's kind of where we're at today. Where rather than moving on to the 90s, as we mentioned last time around, what we're gonna do is talk about the very very early work of John Carpenter. So the 1969 student film Captain Voyeur, which he directed and wrote himself. And then the 1970 short film, The Resurrection of Bronco Billy, which, as we talked about way back in our first episode on Dark Star, was a film that Carpenter co-wrote and did editing and music for, and that won a Student Academy Award. So it's John Carpenter's only Oscar to date, and really gave him a, a foothold in the industry before he was even out of college, and even though he didn't direct it, it's kind of a, a major touchstone in his early career. So we thought it was an important moment to just step back and look at the early stuff and then unbeknownst to us when we recorded our last episode John Carpenter just dropped another musical single over the past couple of weeks I believe it was July 3rd or somewhere around there that that came out so that was after we recorded our second They Live episode and so we got to talk about that this podcast is the movies and music of John Carpenter and we've got a brand new piece of music so we're going to start there we'll talk about the newest thing that he's done and then we'll take a break and 
then we'll go back and talk about the really early stuff. So, Chris, what do you think of Skeleton and Unclean Spirit, the new John Carpenter single? I- I'm just happy that we can say the new John Carpenter <laughs> single, personally. Yeah, I, well, I was tipped off again by our friend uh, Josh Mosley, who featured on our episode, Christine. Uh, he loves to notify me when anything Carpenter related is released, and he follows that stuff a lot, like on Twitter. And he sent me a text with the link to the Sacred Bones website. And I'm looking at it, and I'm going, man, this is such a beautiful piece of vinyl. And, you know, it's limited edition. I'm like, ah, I'm not going to spend like, you know, $28 on two songs. It's only six minutes of music. And then I'm like, well, you know, would be nice to have in the collection. Well, let me listen to it first. So I just pulled up Spotify and there it was. And like within one minute of listening to the first track, I was like ordering the album. I was like, <laughs> I, I think the skeleton track is unbelievable. It's very much in the vein of the stuff that he did with the Lost Themes, again, collaborating with Cody and Daniel Davies. But I love that song. There's there's something, um, it kind of started off like a lot of, of those songs do, you know, with the pulsing kick drum and the synthesizer. But once that piano melody dropped, man, I was just like, ah, oh, this is this is beautiful. So again, long story short, I was really happy with that and the other track, they got me again. Sacred Bones Records. I I placed my order, and it's supposed to ship like at the end of August or something like that. So. Oh wow! So you got a little bit of waiting to do for that. Yeah, I mean, I I was first of all as like kind of taken aback by the difference between the track skeleton and the cover art for the single because it's this very creepy like X-ray skeleton photo that they use for the cover. It's a really really nicely designed sort of black and white cover with a uh, uh, red text over it. I mean, it just looks really stark, really cool. So I thought that track was going to be the creepy one, the kind of like atmospheric horror sounding thing. And it, it is. I mean, it could definitely fit in a Carpenter style horror film. I mean, of course, every time I listen to these, I'm thinking, what is the movie? Like, I, I, I can't sort of distance myself from Carpenter as a filmmaker as much as I'd like to sometimes. And even when I was listening to Lost Themes, it's like, okay, what is the hypothetical imaginary Carpenter movie that would fit with this track? So I definitely did the same thing with Skeleton, and I agree with you. I mean, that that sounds a lot like the early 80s stuff. Reminded me a little bit of, like, Escape from New York, that kind of very driving, synth-based kind of action thing that he does, and... Yeah, I agree with you. I like it a lot. It's got some cool dynamics on it. Like, there are a couple parts where the synths and the drums drop out and we just get a little bit of guitar. I mean, I'm not sure if it's real guitar or if it's, uh, like, synthesized guitar, but I kind of liked those parts oh, also. Oh, it's, it's real guitar. Is it? Just yeah, kind of that heavily processed? guitar that comes in is... It, it's heavily processed, and I think it's detuned a little bit. Okay. Um, so it might be, like, in a, dr- in a drop tuning. But, um, yeah, that guitar melody basically mimics the the main melody of the song i love that i love that very much yeah i thought that was pretty neat see i have to ask you about all of that stuff i mean i can pretty much hang with any film discussion i know my way around the the film terms and when it comes to music it's like i don't know sounds good to me i like it it gets a little quiet and then it gets a little bit loud that's dynamics i think um (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, I really, That's I like that about it. And, uh, and I definitely, I heard a little bit of, of assault in precinct 13, a little bit of escape from New York. I mean, those are kind of, I guess those are the ones that tend to be my favorite carpenter scores is the, the more sort of driving actiony ones, um, rather than the atmospheric ones. Although I I'm sort of going to contradict myself because maybe my favorite out of all of them, as I've said on the show before is Prince of Darkness, which has this very Gothic kind of organ driven religious sort of feel to it. And then the, the second track on the single, the B side unclean spirit, it's kind of exactly that. So I really like that one a lot also. Yeah, the the piano in the second one reminded me a little bit of Halloween too. Yeah, I mean, sure. Not in not like not the main theme of Halloween, but some of the other like piano phrases in that score that are uh, a little bit slower and subtle. And yeah, again, so I'm I'm sitting there listening to it, and I mean, uh, the first track's over, and I'm like, God, I love this, and then the second track hits, and I'm just what I like about it is that it's just so Carpenter identifiable. It's like. As it, it if you if you just played it for me and didn't tell me it was him, I'd be like, oh, this has got to be this is this is Carpenter, right? You know, it's 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 uh, it reminds me a lot of the stuff the the creative process that they have between the three of these guys, Carpenter, his son Cody, and Daniel Davies. I think the setup is just like they've got this. You know, I I've seen some behind the scenes footage on it, and they just have this really nice, you know, kind of modest recording setup where John's able to go in there and put down you know, some key melodies, some key phrases, and then Cody, and I know Daniel Davies does some of the guitar work on there, and they just they just kind of build on it from there. So unlike the improvised um, work that, they, that he does when he's scoring a film, these, these are definitely like studio pieces where you can tell that they were engineered and kind of a little bit more... Um, overdubbing and layering of tracks and things like that. Yeah, they do seem to have a little bit more of a structure to them also than just a, mm-hmm. an, an atmospheric kind of soundtrack piece. But it's cool that, like just having these back-to-back because they are kind of like the two ends of the spectrum of Carpenter soundtracks in some sense where you've got that kind of driving um you know the kind of thing that that now has been emulated by people like cliff martinez uh you know another one of my favorite film composers and then you've also got the sort of spooky stuff i mean i i if i have to pick a favorite out of these two i might go with unclean spirit just because mm. uh, the things that i envision listening to that are you know like a horror anthology series or something i mean i, I could see that making a great theme song for like a, a shutter show or something and yeah um, I mean, I think I think bottom line is I love the work that he did with the two Lost Themes album. And also, I, I, I am a fan of the remix album as well. So it, on one hand, as a fan, I'm like, ah, man, just two tracks. Like, come on. You know, it, it's kind of a tease. On the other hand, it's a signal that hopefully, you know, maybe there's a Lost Themes 3 in the works. Or, I mean, I'm pretty sure the three of those guys could could knock out another dozen tracks with minimal effort if they if they decided to. Yeah, I mean, that was the other thing about it, right? Like, you texted me about it. I didn't know anything. I mean, this sort of came out of nowhere. And just the idea that he is still this prolific, that he's still working. I mean, of course, I would much rather an announcement of a new film, but that's just sort of me. And I know that's probably not happening anytime soon, particularly in the the situation that we're in now where everyone's having a tough time getting films made. But the thought that he is still working and he's not just sort of resting on his laurels and he still has this creative impulse. I mean, he's 
either doing soundtrack work or he's writing comics stuff or, you know, he's he's out there sort of still talking about his old work. I, I love that, you know, and it makes me very happy that we're doing this show. I mean, it, it's not he's not a filmmaker whose career is over, even if he's not really making movies anymore. And I love that about it. You make a good point also, like maybe this single is anticipating something else maybe there will be a, another lost themes or just something i mean i guess you sort of never know what to expect uh, from this guy i was wondering i mean I, I don't know if you know this i don't know if anybody does but just sort of the timing of it i was wondering if this was maybe a project done under quarantine i know you did some musical recording while you were sort of stuck inside and had some ideas and had really nothing else to do but uh, execute those ideas so i'm wondering if it was that kind of thing I think it probably is because just speaking from my own experience, like, you know, when you it's it's really hard to go into the studio and just knock out a song or two and then leave it alone because you kind of get the the creative momentum going. So I'm, I'm really hoping that, uh, you know, he wasn't uh, under quarantine and was like, eh, I'll record a track or two. I'm, I'm hoping that there's some more material to come in the future, uh, in, in the near future. Because I, I think that's just the way that artists work. I mean, right? It, it's I'm sure John Carpenter is living pretty comfortably right now. I I envision him uh, reading books and smoking pot and playing video <laughs> games a lot of the time and stuff like that. Uh, he's probably you know, but uh, I'm sure that there's there's that itch to just get into the studio because during these bizarre times, there's been and there's going to continue to be an explosion of just output from artists of all kinds. I would love to see like a, a live stream concert. Maybe he could do it from his recording studio just to see what he looks like these days. And uh, and actually, like I've never been to a Carpenter live show, and I I guess that would be the closest I could get to one for quite a while. So I think that'd be a lot of fun. Also, <sighs> you you just reminded me. You know there is a Blu-ray of one of his concerts. I'll share with you the link, and that's that's something we should absolutely do a whole nother video on. I can't even think of what the name of it is right now, but I'm not even I'm not even sure how easy it is to get. But I do know you can probably watch it on YouTube. Uh, there is a I want to say a 70 or 75 minute live performance video of John Carpenter. And I I started watching it and it was awesome. I think they actually opened off the, the set with Escape from New York. Nice. And it's really cool because like they have, a you know, a monitor in back playing like clips from the movie as they're performing the song on stage. I mean, it's it's pretty badass, man. I hope one day, uh, like when things get back to normal, even if we have to meet in the middle somewhere, uh, I would love to go to a show with you and actually see the, the sort of Carpenter musical extravaganza in person. No, oh, I would pay. I would pay good money to do that because um, <laughs> the, the opportunity for that to happen just becomes more and more limited by the day. I'm trying to look up what the uh, the name of that concert is before I forget. Uh, I'll 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 find it later so I don't kill time on the air. But I know there is a John Carpenter Blu-ray out there. Oh, there it is. It's it's literally just called John Carpenter Live Blu-ray disc from uh, Storm King Productions. Ooh. In stock. <laughs> Great. Twenty bucks, dude. That's uh, that's going that's going in the cart right Can't now. Can't afford not to have that. Yeah, I might have to do the same thing. I just don't have my Amazon open. But <laughs> twenty bucks. That's a steal, man. I'll fire up the TV. I'll fire up the speakers. Turn all the lights out and just have a party with that one, man. Yeah, I'm that sure. sounds like fun. It'll be a good way to spend October this year, since Halloween is not going to be quite yes. the, the season that it usually is. All right. Well, we've talked about the newest addition to the Carpenter canon of film and music. So. 
Now we're going to go back to the really, really early stuff. We will be right back to talk about Captain Voyeur and the resurrection of Bronco Billy. Bronco Billy was a man. We are back, about to take a deep dive into the very early work of young John Carpenter when he was a film student at the University of Southern California. Of course, a film program that birthed a lot of major talents in the new Hollywood sort of era. We're talking about the place where Spielberg went to school and George Lucas. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola was heavily involved with, with that whole group. I mean, this is one of my favorite eras of filmmaking just in general to talk about because, as we said, way back on our first episode on Dark Star, you've got all these incredible talents, uh, you know, even some of the ones that John Carpenter worked with, like Nick Castle and the great Dan O'Bannon, the late great Dan O'Bannon. There's sort of this like burgeoning rookie filmmaking talent going on out there. And the studios were like really eager to work with these people. And the old guard of Hollywood, the the people that John Carpenter and, and Spielberg and folks like that emulated and grew up with and and learned a lot from they were sort of all on their way out the old studio heads and the old producers and the old filmmakers and they were being replaced with this younger feistier more sort of film literate generation who had grown up with not only hollywood not only the sort of classics of john ford and and like frank capra and people like that but also were, were film literate enough where they had seen a number of foreign films and, and they were interested in film theory as much as they were kind of the entertainment side of the business. So I think Carpenter very much falls into that. And one of his major works, I mean, Captain Voyeur is from 1969 and this is a an eight minute black and white short film that it's often talked about. I mean, I had never seen it before just now. Like we're going to talk about Captain Boyer first and then we'll move on to uh, adventure. Uh, sorry. Resurrection of Bronco Billy, which was a year later. And even though Carpenter didn't direct that one, I think his fingerprints are all over it. So we thought it was important to talk about both, but with Captain Boyer, it's kind of the, the first statement of Carpenter as a filmmaker. And you've probably read about this one. If you're a fan or, heard about it because a lot of people kind of make the connection between this and Halloween, which was not his first theatrical feature, obviously, but definitely his first major hit and his first kind of big theatrical showing. And if you don't really know John Carpenter that well, you probably do know that he's the guy that directed Halloween. It's a hugely popular movie. So we see, I think, maybe some of the roots of that here. But Chris, would you like to describe for our audience what Captain Voyeur is? Yeah, and before I do that, I wanted to comically point out that when you said, when you almost said the adventures instead of resurrection, I thought you were going to say the adventures of Briscoe County Jr. <laughs> I uh. miss that show so much. <laughs> Shout out to Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi and everyone else involved in that wonderful show that lasted, what, like six episodes or something? Yeah, and speaking of Bruce Campbell, they just uh, they just released all three Maniac Cop movies on Shudder. I thought that was 
hilarious. But anyway, not to get off off topic. Yeah, so Captain Voyeur, when I watch this, and by the way, for our listeners out there, it's on YouTube. You can just watch it there, um, and it's about eight minutes long. I uh, I was thinking about how funny it would be if, you know, we started this show with Dark Star. I guess we technically should have started with this movie because, as you said, this is literally his, his first work as a director. And it... <laughs> Really, it's it's really odd. I mean, you can tell me, it, Dark Star can be described as like you know a high budget student film, but Dark Star compared to this, I mean, this is a student film. You know, this this looks like it was made, <laughs> you know, on on a on, like this is something that was made at you know just I can picture like just a group of kids at in a video production class. Uh, with a camera trying to put something trying to put some scenes together that that make some kind of that are in sequence so it makes some kind of story I mean, there's not much story here there's basically a uh we, we started off and there's this dude who's basically he's in it looks like some kind of audio factory or something like that and he's uh he's just working behind the, the Wikipedia describes him as a bored computer worker. Yeah, I mean, they, they used to store computer data on, like, magnetic tapes back then, so I think maybe that's what that is. I mean, I'm not sure. I am imagining that, like, whatever this setting is that we see for the first minute or two of this film, that's got to be somewhere on the USC campus, right? Like, I don't think sure. they gave him access to a, a functioning office anywhere, and this was probably, <laughs> you know, just some room that he was able to get into. And, like, I, I made a few student films. I was a film student. And definitely seeing these kind of just made me a little nostalgic. But um, the the sort of the way you approach a student film is, yeah, like what settings do I have access to and how can I get as much production value as possible out, out of all of them? So it definitely sort of struck me there. Like this does look like, you know, maybe what IBM or whatever looked like at the time. But I'm sure this is just some kind of computer room on campus or something. It's a great shot that opens this up, by the way. I mean, it's uh, maybe one of the most professional looking things in the film. And um, we don't know exactly what this character played by Jerry Cox does for a living, but it's <laughs> it's something technical and, uh, you know, looks incredibly boring. And there is only one distraction from that. Yeah. So he's just sitting at his desk and there's a woman who's kind of like checking all the reels and the camera pans back and forth between, you know, his his. Uh, glance or his glare or his stare I should say at her and it cuts back to the woman and then cuts down you know to her legs and he's obviously uh distracted by by her and basically that's all the that's all that happens in that first setting is this guy's just basically just just sitting there staring at this woman um and then it you, cut. Well, bef before we move on from there, I just wanted to mention uh, yeah. the the tracking shot, as I was saying, that opens this film. The cinematographer, his name is uh, Joanne Willens, and I would say, I mean, I don't know exactly what they had access to, but it looks like there's. It could be just somebody pushing the camera on a wheelchair or something like that, but it's a really nice-looking tracking shot. Um, it it looks like they have some kind of professional dolly or something like that, and you know, it gives a great 
impression of the space and even though it's kind of unmotivated while we're moving through the space i mean that's a very film student thing to do is to just have a shot just because we can uh like it doesn't serve the story that much at all but it does make this look a little bit more professional and just looking at the imdb page for joanne willens it is incredibly barren Uh, i don't know what happened to this person but this is her only credit in any film ever and she did i thought a very very good job as a cinematographer here so uh, you know, I, I can't say that she definitely would have gone on to be like a Gary B. Kibbe or a Dean Cundy, but um, <laughs> Carpenter knew how to pick them, I guess, very early on. Yeah, and, and you're right. I like that. I like how kind of the first shot is just this big room, you know, the big office, and then it cuts to, you know, kind of like a narrow corridor where he's sitting at the end uh, in the desk there, and the tracking shot, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it definitely... Uh, you could tell that there are definitely some, there's some effort put into this. And and the production design also, right? Because when we first see this Jerry Cox character, he's got these very thick black glasses on. He's wearing dark colors, I believe. I mean, we can tell that that is the important character, right? Like we see two just sort of extras, two guys standing around in the large room that we open up with. And, you know, at at first I was like, oh, I wonder if one of them is going to end up being the titular Captain Voyeur. But no, I mean, once we see this guy sitting behind this desk, sort of isolated in the middle of the frame by himself, we know that, that that's someone that we're going to need to follow so you know some some very good choices made i think early on here and i don't want to give this film too much credit but uh you can see definitely the wheels turning a lot yeah so it it at least the, the scene at least establishes a curiosity of who is this guy what's he doing there's a shot of him kind of walking down the street and then basically he goes back to his apartment what it seems to be, and it's it has kind of a lonely vibe to it. There's no one there, and he just um, <laughs> he starts uh, he starts taking his clothes off, and then goes into the bathroom. And then after the scene that we just watched, I'm like, oh my god, this this movie's not going to go there, is it? And we hear some, you know, kind of uh, we hear just some noises of him, you know, undressing in the bathroom. And then the door opens and he's standing there wearing a mask and a cape. And I was like, wow, I was not expecting that. <laughs> I wasn't either. So I knew what this film was about, right? I knew it had to do with a, a stalker, a peeper, a voyeur. Uh, uh, but like the title Captain Voyeur, I didn't realize that he was going to have like a, a superhero sort of get up on. So that that title is actually very literal. He's not just some regular, ordinary peeping Tom, but he is he's Captain Voyeur. He's like he even gets a, a little superhero fanfare on the soundtrack when he emerges from that bedroom. Yeah. Yes. room and kind of does like almost like a Superman pose and yep. just sort of knowing what we know about this character already. I mean, he's a total creep. He was ogling this woman at work and, um, you know, I guess he sort of fancies himself as not just any old creep, but a creep with, I don't know, some, some special abilities at creeping. Yeah. Because we also get, <laughs> not, not, you know, it's funny because they, it's mentioned that, you know, there's certain elements in this movie that are that similar to, the, the aesthetic of Halloween later on, but I thought of someone's watching me right away when I saw that telescope, dude. Well, same here, and also just the apartment that he's in, right? With the big picture yeah. window, it's got the blinds in front of it. I was like, wow, that reminds me a little bit. It's kind of a smaller, less nice version of the Lauren Hutton character's apartment in Someone's Watching Me. So, I don't know, like... 
I think it's probably overreaching to make that connection too strongly. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely an element that that film is all about voyeurism. Also, we right. see it from the, the perspective of someone being spied on. But eventually she gets a telescope, too, and kind of becomes the voyeur in that film. So uh, sort of a, a small thematic thread that we could maybe follow there. What I thought was kind of fascinating was we're like a minute and a half into this movie. And I hate the main character already. I think he's a total piece of shit. Yeah, <laughs> I mean Absolutely. he's he's an interesting piece of shit, but that's pretty rare for a Carpenter film. His protagonists are generally very sympathetic, and in this case, uh, not at all. Well, he also doesn't say anything. There's there's really not much character development other than you know we see this guy at work, uh, you know, as kind of just a suit and tie sort of guy, and then we see him at home wearing this ridiculous costume and looking through the telescope trying to you know spy on he's he's you know look, looking for uh for for women to prey on i guess or not even prey on but just again just be a creeper and then i guess what he leaves the house and starts running around there's like those real funny shots of him just running you know down this like alleyway um which i think i read somewhere those those shots were done at usc obviously but he's like running around with this cape on and then just going up to random people's windows and uh, as they're, you know, doing sexual things and he's just like watching them. I mean, that's that is... the whole movie. Yeah, that's that is yeah. the rest of it. And then there's sort of a, a shock conclusion to it. But I would say the, the meat of the running time is, yeah, he just goes from place to place. It was never clear to me. I mean, again, I don't want to like over criticize this film and I don't want to talk about it as if it's a, a professional feature film. But we get the establishing moment of him and this woman from his workplace. And then we see her again at the end of the film, but like, is he looking for her? And that's why he goes to all these different windows or is he just sort of working his way up to spying on her? Like she's sort of the ultimate conquest, but he has to see a few other people and, and, you know, compromising positions before he gets to her. That's never really made clear. Right. Right, or maybe he just got lucky and happened to, you know, a- after right, hitting a few houses, <laughs> he's like, oh, it's it's the girl from work sort of thing. <laughs> what then, a winky dink yeah. Yeah, and then in a very, <laughs> <laughs> in a very, um, what, what should I say, or sporadically, she just picks up a gun and shoots him. Yeah, and not just any gun, right? Like, it looks like a, a 1911, like one of those cult, like a, a really sort of large caliber pistol that she just so happens to have in her bedroom, and yep. she shoots him, and then we just get a little bit of voiceover, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah, what is the line at the end of the movie? It's like, uh, I, f- I forget what it was, but I, th- I thought it's, it was It's something like, I didn't mean to do it, like like she yeah. was just shocked and that's why she shot him but I mean I, I can't really blame her right and there's a creepy guy in a mask sort of breaking into her room and um, I think I probably would have done the same thing and anybody in my life I think I would have advised them to do the same thing yeah I mean look I, I watched this twice and I <laughs> I, 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 re- I respect it for what it is I certainly understand just just because of you know what a legendary director Carpenter would become and, and his legacy I understand the importance of this and <clears throat> because everybody has to, has to start somewhere but it really didn't do anything for me as a viewer i was just, it just kind of was like ah okay that's i mean we're going all the way back to 1969 here i mean dark star wasn't even until 5 years later so this is uh this is amateur amateur hour for sure well it seems a little bit pointless right i mean when we get to bronco billy there's definitely some 
themes and ideas like that movie is trying to say something this does feel a little bit more slapdash this does feel a little bit more kind of thrown together and it's like we didn't really have an ending so here's our ending you know it it doesn't feel like the most fully realized thing but there are interesting moments along the way and and just sort of this idea of this masked caped creeper going around and spying on people i mean that's sort of an interesting thing in itself and one of the things I, I really did like about it is some of the stalking scenes and the peeping scenes. I mean, you can see just sort of like the subjective camera work that we see later on in Halloween. Like we're basically seeing these tracking shots that are following Captain Voyeur. I'm just going to call him Captain Voyeur. I mean, <laughs> that's his name, I guess. <laughs> The way we sort of see him in these darkened alleyways. And yeah, it definitely does look like a college campus, although I guess it could pass for some kind of residential apartment complex. Um, We get a a lot of shots like that. And then there's a great moment. It's really early on, actually. And then things get, I think, maybe a little repetitive, a little tiresome after this. But the first couple that we see, there's just a a guy and a woman and they're naked from the waist up and they're they're sort of in the throes of foreplay or something like that. And there's a (laughs) little square window in the background of the frame and we see Captain Voyeur just kind of sitting there it's like a deep focus shot so everything is in focus and they don't notice him like the the arrangement of the scene is that he is spying on them they're not aware that he's there and there's something I think very very creepy and very unsettling about that I mean this film does a weird thing where it walks a line between comedy and horror that I've never seen walked in a Carpenter film other than this one right like his other comedy horror films are are not the same kind of humor that we see here. And this moment particularly strikes me as just sort of pure horror. You know, even though the mask is silly and everything like that, this is literally a a guy watching people having sex and they don't see him. And there's something, I think, incredibly creepy and unsettling about that. Yeah, definitely. Didn't at one point they look and see him there, though? And then then they just don't even care and just keep doing their thing? Uh, it's unclear, and that's another sort of mystery of this movie. Um, I don't think they see him uh, because the mask is really dark, and I don't think just sort of like in terms of the the way the scene is set up, I don't think they can. I mean, I guess that would be sort of an interesting point too. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess a lot of the other scenes are just sort of variations on this theme where he's just going from window to window. There's some like you know, some sexual stuff and some some kinks and some things in this movie that you don't really see anywhere else in Carpenter. He is not a film. I mean, some filmmakers are really hung up on those sort of ideas and they, they have that kind of, you know, that sort of fetish imagery and stuff like that in all their films and those ideas in all their films. And we don't really ever see that again in Carpenter. But one of the windows uh, Captain Voyeur goes to, there's a guy with a dominatrix who's got a whip and mm-hmm. we don't actually see her whipping him. It's all done in sound effects. I guess they were afraid somebody <laughs> was going to get hurt that's another thing with student films right is you really can't have like a lot of stunt work or anything like that i mean this is another one that made me think back to just stuff that i shot on my college campus that we probably should have gotten in a lot of trouble for and uh thankfully we didn't but yeah that that must have been a a fun scene to stage i thought that was nick castle the guy getting uh not whipped but about to get whipped in that scene he's kind of got nick castle's face and his hair but i don't see him in the credits so uh i guess not Nick Castle goes uncredited on this one. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know if I would want credit for that particular part either. I I'll say the one thing that I thought that, that reminded me the most of like Halloween, for example, in just the way the shots play out is there's a lot of scenes in Halloween where, where Michael is just standing outside of a house looking through a window and just, you know, it's like he always had that 
that kind of patience to him where he wanted to stand there and just watch. Yeah, and then Halloween, as we've said on the show, on both of the episodes we did, Halloween, the horror comes from the long takes, right? We are sort of unblinkingly seeing through the eyes of Michael Myers a lot of times, and we don't have that sort of quick cut thing that horror often does. And like I said with that scene I was just talking about, right? He is just there in the frame the whole time. We had a couple of close-ups of him there too, I think, but most of that scene, the sort of power and the meaning of it comes out of the the fact that it is a deep focus long take where this couple is in the foreground and Captain Voyeur is in the window in the background. I mean, yeah, like it's I don't think it's incorrect to, to draw the line between this and Halloween, certainly. And just sort of the idea of, of stalking people through their homes, which they had considered safe and considered to be private. Uh, that's, that's sort of what this is all about. There's another scene. I mean, I guess it's sort of played for comedy. A lot of stuff in this film and, and even in the other one, I think would not play at all in 2020 and was just sort of okay and acceptable back then so he goes into one apartment it's sort of very darkened and there's a clothesline in there and we see someone hanging up a bunch of ladies lingerie like very elaborate sort of expensive looking ladies lingerie so he's looking and looking and looking the scene goes on for quite a while and then there's a reveal there and and maybe this is just the quality of the, the YouTube version of this film that we looked at but the character that looks through like kind of parts the lingerie that's hanging there and looks sort of right into the camera that's a man right Yes. So we've got like a, a cross dresser character that he sees there. Maybe that was Nick Castle too. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> They're all Nick Castle. It's all just Nick Castle. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a little game of spot Nick Castle in all the early Carpenter <laughs> films. But uh yeah, I mean I, I thought that was kind of an interesting moment also. I mean I, I guess today some people might find that offensive. It's not exactly played for comedy, it's not exactly played in a derogatory way. Captain Voyeur seems to be okay with that. He's not going to shame that person or anything like that but I guess it's just an interesting idea and it's the way it's done visually I think is interesting also because we just see the hands hanging lingerie on the clothesline and then the reveal of that shot I mean that the sort of setup punchline of it the setup and payoff of it I think that works pretty well so there are some interesting moments along the way but uh I mean, when we get to this final girl even though this is not really a horror film it does sort of have a final girl we see her very briefly. I mean, it's not established terribly well. She pulls out this gun and she shoots, and, and that is the end of Captain Voyeur. So I don't know if the setup and payoff there are, are quite as well realized. Yeah, I was surprised. I was like, oh, okay. And then, like anything with this short of a running time, it just it just sort of ends abruptly. Um, and a lot but... of times that is you just ran out of money. Um yeah. I remember a high school student film that a friend of mine made where it was kind of a riff on Jim Jarmusch's ghost dog. And then he just couldn't have the actors for another day. So like out of nowhere, the character actually turned into a dog so he could just use his dog to like oh, complete great. the movie. <laughs> so sometimes you do have to cut corners like that. I don't know if I did anything quite so egregious as that. But yeah, this oh. feels like a, a little bit uh, abrupt and things, you know, it, it, it looked like maybe the semester was ending and they had to get some 
something done on time and they just banged out uh, what they could. They probably, you know, one of the big mistakes of student film sometimes is you shoot in order. You don't shoot sort of uh, in the way that is most convenient to, to production, but you kind of just shoot the first scene, then the second scene, the third scene. I mean, movies are never shot chronologically, but when you don't know any better, I guess that that's a thing that you can do. Um, one more thing I just wanted to mention. I love the hand-drawn titles in this film. They just look like oh, yeah. marker on paper that they shot. And uh, I don't know, there's a very sort of neat handcrafted quality about that that I like. Yeah, this isn't this isn't John Carpenter's Captain Voyeur at, at, at this point. Um, no, and they, like he's known later on for these very stately looking titles, you know, white yeah. on black, very stark, very neat, and very yeah. atmospheric. And here it's just kind of like, you know, it looks like it was drawn on the back of a napkin or something. I, uh, I, I thought of, I just thought of now hilariously, what if the movie Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, instead of Forrest Whitaker's character, it just was a dog instead, like the <laughs> entire movie. And you got that scene where like Rizza is like walking down the street and he's just like, what's up, dog? Like, I, I don't know why <laughs> I thought how funny that would be. Oh, little boy. tangent there, but anytime that movie gets brought up, I love that movie. And it's a great uh, movie. Yeah. Back in 1999, when I was in high school making student films, I was obsessed with uh, with that film and and sort of everything about it. So yeah, yeah the, the, sound, the, sound, oh, the soundtrack was excellent. Yeah. Yep. But anyway, yeah that that is Captain Voyeur. Any final thoughts? Any. No. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> nope. I Moving mean, on. <laughs> I think it's important if you're a Carpenter fan to see this. Uh, yes. Like, yes. you can't look at any film. Like, I've seen a lot of short films. I've kind of made a point to go back, and particularly when YouTube came around, you could see the early work of filmmakers that you like a lot. My favorite, I think, that I saw was Bottle Rocket, the original Bottle Rocket by Wes Anderson, which mm-hmm. is like a 10-minute short with the Wilson brothers and basically has a, a the same story as the feature film, which I love very much. Much, and it's in black and white and that's one that I think really does capture what that filmmaker is going to be very well uh, Chris Nolan has a, a really good one I believe is Doodlebug his have you seen his early film yes I, think I have not Doodlebug. seen it but I know I, that title sounds very familiar yeah um, Darren Aronofsky has one that I've seen. So uh, Quentin Tarantino's My Best Friend's Birthday. It's not completed. It's like a feature film that he kind of started. He didn't go to film school, but he was basically at that stage of his life and made a movie that has some very Tarantino qualities. And I guess a lot of it was lost, but uh, some of it does still survive on YouTube. But I mean, the point I was trying to make is you can't really ever look at somebody's student films and be like, OK, well, I see the beginnings of, of whatever this is going to be, whatever this career is going to turn out to be. But if you're a fan, you know, just sort of finding those little touchstones, those little points where it's like, oh, yeah, that kind of reminds me of someone's watching me or Halloween or whatever. It's kind of fun to do. It's eight minutes of your life that is not going to be a major time commitment. But don't go into this expecting some sort of law classic <laughs> definitely not by the way a captain voyeur would make a really great halloween costume <laughs> or he could go as bronco billy Ooh. Or it, yeah <laughs> even more of an obscure reference so this film won an oscar and i think that's sort of fascinating in and of itself um this is sort of an interesting filmmaking team that is collected here because you not only have Carpenter as the editor as the composer and as like one of five credited writers I mean I I 
it's so hard to say who contributed mm-hmm. what to this and and some of this film actually feels improvised so it's almost like the writers don't sort of matter at all and what what little dialogue there is is not exactly um it's not the focal point of the film at all, but I guess maybe these these five sort of came together with the idea or something like that. But you not only get Carpenter, but you also get Nick Castle as cinematographer. And I think this one is beautifully shot. I think this is a, a really, really nice looking movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, Castle with a writing credit and uh, cinematography credit here. That Castle and Carpenter, they go way back. Yeah, and again, I like I was almost surprised that there weren't more people because Carpenter later on, as he grew up, essentially, he liked to work with the same people over and over and, and like, you know, Deborah Hill producing his movies and Dean Cundy as his cinematographer and Tommy Lee Wallace as his regular production designer for a long time. So I guess, I mean, I, there's two possible explanations for that. One is just that you're in college and kind of people come and go. They drop out of school, they transfer or something like that. Or, you know, maybe he was just a young man and didn't really realize at that point how important it is to have this team of people that you can trust and, and depend upon and have simpatico ideas with you and everything like that. But Nevertheless, I do think this is a really important touchstone in the Carpenter filmography also because, as I mentioned before, it's it's an Oscar-winning film, and the fact that he sort of came out of the gate that strong... I mean, I I see in this one... So I, I, I guess before we get to analysis of it, we should talk about what Bronco Billy is. So what's your interpretation of what this movie is supposed to be? Well, it's kind of like about... The character, the the main character here, John Johnny Crawford, is a he's kind of in a world that is kind of too much hustle and bustle for him, and he's sort of pining. Uh, he's obsessed with westerns, and he kind of has this vision of living like uh, his heroes that he sees in western movies, like John Wayne and riding on a horseback and just being in, in kind of a, a simpler time. And he lives in modern L.A., so or, or 1970 L.A., modern at the time. Yeah. So, and uh, again, just to just to mention before so we don't confuse our audience. So this, so this is, Carpenter did not direct this. This is the his first writing credit. And the, as you said, yes, crazily, somehow this wins an Oscar. And, th- and then I guess that Oscar goes to all the writers, which would be all, all five of them. So, Well, I think it actually went to the producers, like the best picture Oscar does. But I mean, it's like, I remember just sort of listening to the Dark Star commentary or something. We're like, yeah, we were just hanging out in, in college. They were probably pissed drunk or something like that, watching the Oscars like in their dorm room. And all of a sudden, hey, you guys won. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it's sort of spread between all of them, even if they didn't get to hold the trophy yeah. right away it, it's about a guy who's sort of it, the, what my take on it was it's about a guy who's sort of he's he's sort of socially awkward he's not like super motivated to you know conform to the get get a job and, and pay your bills kind of kind of lifestyle he's like sort of uh, romanticizing this this era of uh western films and western uh, film heroes and you know, we see that in this movie a couple times where he's sitting down with the with the older gentleman there who's telling him all these stories about, uh, you know, shootouts and, and just uh, kind of these adventures, uh, adventure stories from when he grew up in the late 1800s, 1900s. 
Gotta say, I didn't know Carpenter did the music on this one either, and I was kind of digging that. I wonder if he actually played all those acoustic guitar parts, the very kind of folky stuff, but uh, it was really good. Yeah, I really liked the music in this, and, and it ends up having a theme song. We don't get that right away. It's kind of the reveal at the end of the movie, but we get basically the ballad of Bronco Billy. But yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. It's about this character who is kind of... He's kind of a never-do-well in the sense that he is sort of lazy and is sort of a man out of time, like living his his Western fantasies, even though we can tell pretty early on that his Western fantasies come from the movies. And, of course, Carpenter being the John Ford and Howard Hawks fan that he is, I mean, we, we know that those guys made a lot of Westerns, a lot of the sort of classic Westerns. Johnny Crawford was in, I believe it was El Dorado, so he was in one of the John Ford films. And it's like... It's sort of a portrait of someone who grew up on the same stuff that guys like Carpenter did, but rather than take it in a creative direction and make movies like, you know, an, an emulation of your heroes, like the way Assault in Precinct 13 is essentially Rio Bravo in, in a modern setting, this is a character who just sort of went in a more inward direction with that and dresses like a movie cowboy and has posters of classic westerns all over his bedroom. I, I will tell you about this film, I don't want to make this whole episode about my student films, but the one that I was proudest of when I was an undergraduate was very, very much like this, not as good as this, but my influences were more the... Hollywood noir films of the 1940s. So I made a film about a modern character who was kind of maybe in a mentally ill kind of sense, but was obsessed with those films like Sam Spade and um, hmm. interesting the Humphrey Bogart characters and the, the cinematic private eye. So he was kind of a, a private eye from the 40s living in a modern world, even though he was a modern guy and eventually got himself involved in an actual mystery and was kind of called upon, not because he was a genius detective, but because he just sort of has the look of a uh, of a classical detective. So that warmed my heart a little bit to think that, because I, I knew nothing about this film, certainly not back then, but it is a very similar idea. I think the execution here was a little bit better, but I don't know, I had a couple scenes that, that were okay there. But I love movies about movies, and this is definitely a movie about movies, and it, it's a film where the sort of mythology of Hollywood is really important in it, and I do think that theme gets across really, really well, not only in the dialogue, but also in the visuals. Like, we get a lot of shots here, and again, Castle's work here I think is fantastic, um, where you've got Billy, Bronco Billy, if we want to call him that, standing in the middle of an L.A. street with the skyscrapers kind of flanking him on both sides very traditional sort of western shot in the in a western a traditional western it would be like a mesa on both sides like he's going into a right. canyon the cars the way traffic is portrayed in this movie looks like a cattle drive it looks almost like john wayne's red river where it's this sort of just mass of moving uh, objects that are all sort of dangerous in their own sense and you have to kind of fight your way through them or something like that so um definitely some visual ingenuity here i think and you actually already brought up my favorite scene in this film well one of my favorites there's, there's two that i really like 
But basically, instead of leading a normal existence, one of the things that Billy does, like, I, I think he sort of skips out on the early part of his work day to go sit with this old man. His name is Wild Bill Tucker. And I guess he's some sort of, I guess he was like a, a rodeo showman or something like that. Like, I kind of looked him up and he doesn't have a lot of film credits, but he seems to be a guy who's an expert in Western history and sort of knows all the names and the legends and the stories, as you were saying, and, and you know, shootouts and cattle drives and all that stuff. So Billy goes and just kind of, I guess you could say interviews him. Like they're just sitting in this guy's house and obviously they've done this many times before. And he's a very, very old man and was alive sort of in the, the waning days of the wild West. And he just relates all these stories. And there's some neat editing there where we just see the clock sort of going on and on and on. Like we don't get all of these stories, but we get little snippets of it. And we just see that Billy is spending a lot of time talking to this guy. And he seems fascinated by these legends of the West. Yeah, this person was killed by that person, and this person was killed <laughs> by that person, and this person, I mean, over and over again. Um, and then, of course, there's the, uh, that scene kind of ends with the the watch. Yeah, John, Johnny Crawford, he pulls out the watch, he goes, hey, my watch stopped working, and he's like, hey, you gotta turn it from time to time there, Johnny. And then, <laughs> whatever. whatever. Uh, yeah, so it's like he's, um, you know, he's so lost in his own head right lost in his own thoughts that even just sort of a simple task a simple daily chore which is wind your pocket watch uh he doesn't even remember to do that he basically sorry go ahead i was just gonna say it opens the movie opens up with him getting yelled at because he's gonna be late for work and then when he when he goes outside his his landlord's like so are you gonna like pay the rent or you know it's and yeah so he's definitely like he's got no money and and he's spending all his money on going to the movies right that's what she criticizes him for she mentions that yeah she's like you should go to a night class and get a good trade (laughs) (laughs) i don't know yeah So, yeah, I mean, there's after that a few shots of him just kind of traversing the city and it does have this very Western sort of feel to it, the way that it's shot. It's these low angles often, uh, which do suggest wide open spaces, which is kind of ironic because the city is is the opposite of of the West, right? It's it's not wide open spaces. So to film it that way, we we kind of have that, that thought going on in our heads. Also, there's a shot. It reminds me a little bit of The Searchers where he's inside of a building and we get an open doorway and there's light behind it. It's a sort of very famous John Ford kind of composition there. So we do have these little visual moments that recall the Western. And then most of this film is shot in kind of a sepia tone. It almost looks like the Great Train Robbery or something Mm. like that. I don't know if it's black and white. It looks like kind of a tinted black and white, like the very early silent films a lot of them were. So again, the Great Train Robbery is one of the most famous early silent films, and that was a Western. So it definitely very clearly establishes itself in this cinematic Western tradition, much more so than the actual Western tradition, right? And and I think this film does an interesting thing that I, I've read about so many times. I took a whole class in grad school about cinematic Westerns and how... You know, the like one of the the key things when you're studying the Western as a film form is to understand that it's all kind of just made up, right? Like the real West was nothing like the West we saw in movies, and it's all sort of an exaggerated and sort of much sexier and more violent and you know, in a lot of ways, prettier uh, thing than it actually was in history. And I think this movie is kind of harping on that point. Also, I think it's one of the major subtexts of this film. 
So basically, like kind of the crux of this movie, like he loses his job, he goes to work and he's late and kind of just like lights up a cigarette and walks away because, you know, working's for squares or something. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> and he's uh, <laughs> just, uh, yeah, he's, I love how you mentioned too before. He's like terrified to cross the street. He's, got, he's looking at these cars like they're aliens or something, you know. Yeah, well, there's almost like a showdown, too, right? I was just going to say that. Yeah, there's that scene where there's just this, like, business dude crossing the street, and, <laughs> you know, he's, like, walking towards him, and he's acting like he's reaching for his gun, and there's going to be, a like, a showdown or something. It's it's pretty unusual. Yeah, and then, of course, they just pass right by each other because, like, nobody wants to get into a, a shootout with you. But then, actually, so he goes into a bar, and he's... Um, I guess he doesn't have any money to drink and someone buys him a drink and then he's beaten up in the alley outside the bar by these two thugs that just sort of come up to him and they're using gay slurs. Uh, I guess because of the way he dresses, they they think he's he's a homosexual and they they actually throw the F word at him pretty liberally here. I was surprised. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised to hear that. And and beat the shit out of him also. Yep. And they snatch his watch. Yeah, all the all this happens uh, pretty quickly, and then basically after this, he he meets a woman. That dude, that it was that was probably my favorite part about this movie is watching him talk to this woman about like all the John Wayne movies and all the details about you know his hats and his costumes and his and his guns and stuff like that. And I'm just like thinking to myself, dude, like top 10 worst conversations to have like if, you, if, if you're trying to uh you know start a relationship with with a woman you've never met before <laughs> yeah well it's, it's a great scene right because it does kind of ebb and flow a little bit and it has some interesting dynamics to it where he's just kind of sitting in the park and he's just gotten the crap beaten out of him and gotten robbed and and called horrible names he's wearing his sort of western getup, and she's an artist right she's just sort of sketching him and she says well i want to put you against a western background you look like a cowboy boy she's a very pretty young lady her name was Kristen Harmon and uh, she was married to Ricky Nelson just a little trivia thing that I saw who starred Mm -hmm. in another one of the Ford movies so all these little sort of cinematic connections there but like it almost looks like he could probably get a date with this girl like she seems interested in him kind of romantically and thinks he's handsome and worth drawing and everything like that and then he immediately blows it by looking at her sketch and saying oh well that's not really the way uh, you know this these little details are not correct and that would be really important to anybody who is a real cowboy which who is actually how do you even define what a real cowboy is and then he sort of goes on this spiel about you know the hats and the accuracy of the the production design and the movies and things like that and starts talking about John Wayne and how he likes John Wayne because his hats were the most accurate and yeah just kind of bores her to death but we also get in the scene the sense that he doesn't know much about the actual West he's not a historian he's just a guy who's seen a lot of movies and sort of knows when they had good sort of realistic depictions of what the West was but he doesn't know much about the West itself and she kind of just gets up and walks away from him because, uh, like you said, it's it's not a great pickup line. And that effectively is the end of the movie. Well, I'm sorry, did you want to say anything else about that scene? He's like the Quentin Tarantino of Westerns. Yes. <laughs> For a couple minutes there. 
that's a really, really interesting point you make, right? Because I think this film is kind of in some way an indictment of that. Like these people who just grew up obsessed with films. And so they see the world through the lens of movies, which are fake and which are entertainment and which are not real life. And, you know, I've certainly been guilty of that very much myself. And, uh, and a person like Quentin Tarantino, he will just rattle off these movie facts left and right. And somebody like me really enjoys listening to that. You know, his commentary and his film reviews and things like that are, are fascinating to me. But are those useful skills, are those things that will make you attractive to a, a potential mate or something? I don't necessarily know. I mean, unless they have the same sort of hardcore movie nerd ideals uh, as you do. So did you see did, did you see the 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 Tarantino doc QT8 yet? I have not. And I've been meaning to since it came out. Now, obviously, oh, it's very much it's of interest br- to me. It's brilliant. You have to watch it. And there's a, I just, this is related to, I had to mention, there's a scene where they're interviewing uh, Michael Madsen. And he's like, yeah, one of the cool things about Quentin is like, you can talk to him about any movie you want. And you can sit there and talk about all the facts about the movie that you know, like who did the, 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 the lighting and the stunt work and the production company and the release date. And, you know, Quentin will just sit there with a big smile on his face and listen to you and nod his head. And then when you're done talking, he will absolutely bury you in knowledge on like any <laughs> film you're talking about. And I was, it's just the way Michael Madsen says it. I was like, yeah, I totally believe that's true. Well, I, uh, it was a couple of months ago when Fiona Apple put out her new album and she was doing some promotional interviews for it. And she used to be in a, a romantic relationship with Paul Thomas Anderson. And she was telling mm-hmm. this, this story about, I mean, they, they did not have a good relationship at all. And I guess he was not a particularly good partner to her. Uh, but she was talking about one night where it was her and Quentin Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson and the two guys just did a mountain of cocaine and just started riffing on movies and just like being very pretentious film nerds back and forth and Fiona Apple just found it kind of insufferable and certainly I could see that happening although when I was reading this I was thinking man I wish I had been there instead of you Fiona (laughs) Apple because not that I would do cocaine but I would definitely enjoy that conversation a lot whether I was well I I don't normally do cocaine but Paul Thomas Anderson. I, and Quentin I guess if they here. chopped up a couple lines for me, I would have to do. It's a very Hollywood thing to do. Um, she didn't think it was so great, but I think I would have had probably the time of my life that night. But right. yeah, yeah, I mean, this film is a very much about that idea about how you do sort of need to break out of this fictional world of movie fandom and and actually get your shit together and have a life. And instead of doing that, where this film ends up is we get its only color sequence where he basically becomes the hero of his own western movie and gets the girl picks her up on his horse and rides off into the sunset to the beautiful strains of john carpenter's bronco billy ballad that ends this film and it's kind of a redemptive happy ending right like this is called the resurrection of bronco billy but um you know it's not a real resurrection at all right like he's kind of still going to be in real life the guy he he has been and is kind of a loser frankly but in his own mind, he's just sort of the hero of his own western. It's a really cool ending, I think. Yeah, he's taking he's taking her taking her to the world that that he lives in, the world that he loves <laughs> in his mind, I guess. Yeah, where there's no talking, right? You just get on the horse and and ride off like every good western hero does. Yeah, and uh, th- this one really, I mean, again, when I saw Nick Castle's name, I couldn't believe it, but. Uh, similarly to I mean both of these films I wasn't really wild about either one of them I mean I didn't really go I didn't really go in with any kind of expectations I guess 
But um, certainly with this one, just knowing that, you know, Carpenter grew up on the the movies from the, the sci-fi movies and the westerns and the horror films of the 1950s. So just to kind of have th- this character and his... Um, you know, his obsession with those Westerns that I, I, I could make sense of how, OK, I could see why this would be something that was penned by by Carpenter. Yeah. And I mean, again, it's such a collaborative thing. Five credited writers just for the story and no credited screenwriter. We don't know who uh, contributed what. But like a, a lot of these other people that work in this film, like the director, James R. Rokos, uh, I looked him up and it looked like he just kind of went into video production or something like he didn't completely leave the industry, but he obviously didn't go on to become a big Hollywood director. Uh, same for John, John Longenecker, who was another one of the producers. And of course, Johnny Crawford was an actor. So, uh, you know, he stayed in the industry, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of an interesting film in that respect. Uh, like, because this is an Oscar winning movie and because John Carpenter is the guy who absolutely, I mean, Nick Castle too, he had a very successful directorial career, but not quite like Carpenter's was. So I think there is a temptation to look at this as a Carpenter film and in some ways it is in some ways. By the way, his editing here is not the greatest. I mean, I mentioned that before and I just kind of want to not to pile on to John Carpenter, but as much as I want to compliment him for the scoring of this and the writing, however much of it he did, um, I thought some of the editing was very choppy. And I know at the time, like these 60s film students, they'd seen a lot of Godard films and kind of more experimental world cinema and wanted to cut things up in those kinds of ways, but they didn't always have kind of the effect that those like French new wave films did. I mean, like Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde from, I think the same year as, or maybe a couple years earlier than this kind of did that a lot better, but that was a professional movie. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, there, there are definitely some themes here, some ideas like the just sort of worship, as you were saying of classic Hollywood Carpenter definitely has that, but his later films found a much better way to express that. I think. I'm just glad we went back and covered these rather than overlooking them because, um, you know, like I think with both of these films, we were able to uh, at least identify, you know, some of his very early on uh, inspirations and efforts and, you know, his fingerprints kind of starting to show up there, which would be, you know, magnified a lot more in movies like Dark Star. And then, of course, I mean, by the time you get to Assault, as I've said on the show before, I mean... Assault on Precinct 13 to me is like that that's that's really the the first true Carpenter film in my opinion and the one that would end up influencing like almost everything else he did after that in some kind of way. Um but I'm glad we did these man because like I said back when we started this show um back at the beginning of the show when I was saying when we started this program last September I didn't even know that these films existed. Yeah, I mean, I just knew them as like footnotes in the the reviews of other films or, or criticism of Carpenter that I'd read on other things. This actually played in theaters. Uh, just sort of one final point about uh, Resurrection of Bronco yep. Billy. So it won that student Oscar, and then Universal picked it up to, I guess, screen in front of their features because going to the movies, like in the early 70s, they, there were some sort of interesting things like that going on. You weren't just watching commercials and trailers before the films, but sometimes you'd get a short. So I wonder what people would have thought if they had just gone to 
to see some big <laughs> Hollywood movie and uh, got a little glimpse of Carpenter and, and all these other people's student film work. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's always really interesting to go back and look at stuff. What's fascinating to me is I kind of wish we had watched these before we watched Dark Star because the jump in quality between these films and that one, I think, is astronomical. It certainly is, and that's that's funny too because you look at the time frame, you know, Captain Voyeur nineteen sixty nine, Resurrection of Bronco Billy seventy, Dark Star not till seventy four, but that makes sense because if you remember when we were reading about the production of that movie, it took like two years for them just to film it, uh, so that that that's in alignment for sure. Probably, and these probably came together. Uh, certainly, Captain Voyeur came together a lot more quickly, and uh, Bronco Billy is definitely more polished of the two, but again, it still seems like locations you could easily get, and they did a lot of outdoor shooting in L.A. and everything, so um, although those final scenes in this where it's in color and he's kind of out on the plane riding his horse and he picks up the girl, um, those look really good. I mean, that, that must have been sort of a complicated shoot to get just sort of the lighting of that and the the look of that together because that that does have sort of a sweeping kind of Hollywood Western feel to it. But anyways, yeah. So our plans for next time around, now that we've talked about some very early student efforts of Carpenter's, we wanted to spend some time on films where Carpenter is credited as writer, uh, not as director. So we're going to move on to The Eyes of Laura Mars from 1978. And then we're also going to talk about Black Moon Rising, and these are two films from 1986, and these are films that I have never seen before, either one of them, so this should be sort of a a fascinating sort of detour from what we've been doing, because Carpenter is generally not known as a screenwriter. You know, we we think of him, I think, much more fully as a director and and as a composer. I mean, that's what this show is, so to see him just as writer, I think, is going to be pretty interesting. I, too, have not seen either of those movies, and I guess I'm going to be watching them very soon. As I showed you, Nick, I did pick up a copy of Eyes of Laura Mars on Blu-ray for very inexpensively on Amazon for about eight bucks. Um, Black Moon Rising, I don't even know if it's available in physical format, but I've seen it. It is available for rent on most uh, major streaming services, so we shouldn't have a hard time tracking that down. But yeah, we figured before we move into the 90s, in alignment with uh, going back and covering some of his earlier work, uh, just getting the, the, the writing credit movies out of the way because they actually all happen to be in the 80s. So that, that makes sense. After the 80s, once he relaunches his career in 92 with uh, memoirs, it's pretty much all directing from there. Yeah. So um, we will get to see John Carpenter's work as screenwriter. Um, I, I know, like, Eyes of Laura Mars, I think, has a fairly decent critical reputation, but Black Moon Rising has a terrible critical reputation. So I'm sort of fascinated to see a really, what potentially could be a really bad movie also. And uh, and we'll see if it is the script that is at fault there or whether it's something. Tommy Lee Jones is in it. You gotta love that guy. And Linda Hamilton. I mean, it's got a pretty good cast. But we will get to that when we get to it. If you have any ideas, thoughts, we love to hear from our listeners. Um, if there's anything else you want to point us towards, something other than the sort of major theatrical films of John Carpenter, we are taking a, a slight detour here and we'd love to maybe do more of that in the future. So if you 
would like to get a hold of us via email, we're at precinct13podcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at 13precinct. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash 13precinct. And our website where you can download all of our episodes, subscribe to the show, that is precinct13.simplecast.com. We would really appreciate a review and a rating on whatever podcast service you use, uh, whether it's Apple or any other one. We love to get feedback. We love to hear from our listeners. So let us know what you want us to talk about. Chris, any final thoughts? Anything else to say before we before we jump on our horse and ride off into the sunset? <laughs> no, I'm just really glad that uh, we're continuing to chip away at this, and I'm really glad that we did a flashback episode. That was fun. Yeah, I think so, too. So uh, apparently there were a bunch of films that Carpenter made, probably like on Super 8 or something, before he got to college. Like, you know, most of these major filmmakers, they didn't just pick up a camera for the first time as students. So I don't know if those exist anywhere, but if anybody has a line on like, you know, something Carpenter made on Super 8 as a teenager, we will totally break it down and analyze it on this show. <laughs> probably overanalyze it and like oh that's a shot from escape from new york there that he did in his backyard or something look i thought this was going to be like a 30 45 minute episode and here we are so yeah (laughs) yeah we can be long-winded about almost anything so until the next time we will talk to you soon and we'll catch you in a couple of weeks for eyes of laura mars and black moon rising 